Having now experienced it on such a small scale, I am absolutely just in awe, in like fear, in just intrigued by how people deal with failing, with having people criticize you. When you take it personally, it's really hard. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. What could you do with all the time you spend agonizing over your food intake and your body image? That's the question Becky Young, our guest today, wants you to answer. Becky is the founder of Anti-Diet Riot Club, an activist community and events platform dedicated to fighting back against diet culture and what she calls the dangerous standards of beauty that surround it. She believes that empowering people to love themselves is a small but powerful resistance against a society that profits billions from our self-loathing. What started as a personal journey started to resonate with people across the world, and she's now built an online following of over 100,000 people. Anti-Diet Riot Club hosts monthly events and workshops on topics like body acceptance, intuitive eating, and radical self-love. They've also hosted a festival, ran a crowdfunding campaign, and have been featured in places like The Independent, The Guardian, The Evening Standard, and Time Out, as well as speaking on BBC News and to the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan. We talked about where moralistic eating came from, what we can do to remove shame from food, why getting bad comments when running a project can be so difficult, and why Anti-Diet Riot Club may always stay as a side project. I hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for joining the Out of Hours podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Talk me through the very beginning. I'm so intrigued because it's now over 100,000 followers. You've had conversations with Sadiq Khan. You've been on BBC One. I'd love to hear about the beginning. The beginning started as an idea in September 2017. I was, I was going through this really intense heartbreak and I didn't have a job. I was sort of wondering if I wanted to get back into the world of music events. I didn't really feel purposeful anymore. So I was just like this big state of flux. I had learned personally so much from the kind of body justice community online specifically and had been reading and researching and changing my own mindset about my body and diet. And in comparison to now, it was quite surface level, but it felt so transformative at the time. I mean, I'd always been reading you know, a lot of like feminist and queer theory and literature, but I'd never sort of thought, oh, this is something that I want to work, work in. Tell me what body justice is. Body positivity is kind of like the mainstream term for it, but it means, you know, acknowledging that all bodies are worthy and that we have this hierarchy of bodies. 
where we put like thin white cis able-bodied at the top and other identities or types of bodies and marginalizations further down and in that we value bodies differently and they get different amounts of power and this is not just about you know being represented and seeing yourself in advertising and fashion it's about the way that you know bodies are treated in terms of mental health provisions in terms of crime and legal justice in terms of access and education and body positivity is such a um, washed out version of that and body justice talks about it more like politically and economically body positivity is still its roots were kind of in more of these like justice activists foundations but it's become now just a sort of slogan for well we have someone who's a size 12 in our campaigns and a marketing tool and I started sort of talking about it with people, posting about it, acknowledging my own experiences, and that had felt really empowering. And I got a lot of incredible feedback and people coming to me with their own experiences and their own struggles and not knowing that I'd gone through this stuff. And I thought, okay, this, this is something we need to talk about more. I had so much momentum. I wanted to do something with it. This is something that I, there's genuine people who need connections and need community. And so I thought I'll do like a kind of conference or congress where we bring together loads of these ideas. I'm like, and then I thought, oh, instead of doing something really big, maybe I'll just do like something small, um, just like a meeting and see who come to it. We'll get someone to speak. And then, yeah, that's kind of where the first event came from. I sort of announced in January 2018, I was going to start this thing called Antidote Riot Club. January is full of diet culture bullshit. So it was kind of the perfect time to announce and then we sold out 100 tickets. I mean, that's mainly to do with Megan Crabb, who is an incredible campaigner and writer, and her book had just come out. So she was booked as the speaker. You know, we sold out like a week before the event. And it had such a great energy, and Grazia and like Metro wrote about it, and um, some journalists were there. And it just sort of like seemed like it really hit a nerve, and people really needed it. And that's when it became okay, I'll just keep doing these kind of events and seeing where it goes. Did you make a conscious choice to kind of do them regularly or? In my head, I kind of thought it'd be nice to do it like two, twice a month. And then it came to summer and I'm like a huge fan of festivals. I thought actually it's like something that would be great at festivals. And then I met Harry and she was also interested in taking her work to festivals as a body acceptance coach. And so that's when we sort of did, we did like five or six the first summer. And then there was always a desire to do something much bigger like a festival or a fair and um, then we did the festival this year in January. You started with these events when did you start setting up the Instagram and started creating an online community? When I first came up with the name. Where did the name come from it sounds like it's some crazy rock band or <laughs> such a cool name. There's a really common slogan called riots not diets resonated with me I think because I'm like if you're so obsessed or so preoccupied with changing your body or like, you know, controlling your food intake and controlling your exercise, there's not much space to really think about or actively try and change the world around you. And it kind of ties into what's her name. I can't remember anyway. She wrote the beauty myth. And in that she said, dieting is the strongest political sedative um, in history. And the book is about how, you know, post eighties and women getting more like economic, equality the patriarchy put on a new disguise and in the form of the beauty and diet industry and that's how it worked to repress people through making them feel like they had to 
be on this constant perfect body project and so yes you know you know women can go for similar jobs but they had to look a certain way and you know their body had to be perfect and you know if they became a mother they had to spring back etc etc once I really loved the name I just sort of started you know I thought I'll get a Facebook and Instagram and I'll do the events and this will promote them and silently behind the scenes before I tell anyone just try and like see what works content wise because I worked in social media before so I knew quite a lot about it um, and start engaging with people from the platform so like start reaching out to other people that I followed and engaging with their stuff because I've been doing that personally and I've made loads of friends personally but wanted to do it now from this account and yeah that's how it started and then eventually when I like announced it to my friends and family which is pretty much it you know it already had 400 500 people on the Facebook and all the Instagram had a little bit of a foundation and that made make you feel a bit more secure going forward how did you find the first 400 I mean there's just a huge online community who's gagging for this kind of content so it's just like engaging with people following people having conversations resharing other people's content and crediting them so that like they know that you exist and it just built really organically I think I've only done like 400 posts so one thing that I saw that for me I think sums up why body positivity matters this one which is this is I think from a Dove study that you posted um, in the UK nine out of ten young girls aged 10 to 17 reported having poor body image why do you think that is I mean I think it's it's an epidemic I, that doesn't surprise me even though it's really shocking I don't know anyone who hasn't had body image struggles I mean maybe one or two people I think like especially women who sort of have felt comfortable in their bodies and I think it's because I mean we're just shown as such a narrow type of what bodies look like I'm not talking about like heroin chic models I'm talking about every single person used in advertising it doesn't reflect what people look like in real life and our subconscious absorbs that and then looks in the mirror and thinks that we're abnormal people as young as that are absorbing all of this information and have just become preoccupied with their bodies being outside of the norm having an anxiety that their bodies are not normal and that they need to change it and that they if they don't if they're not trying to change it then they're somehow failing because they have no willpower or they're lazy or they're unhealthy or whatever the dove report also said that by the time they are 10 years old over a third of girls and I think around 22% of boys say that the way that their body looks is their number one priority the number one thing they think about in life and that's just it's just insane to think that a third of girls think that that they're not focused on their friends or their um, that it even is coming to their remit of the way that their body looks like is important let alone the most important thing it's not rare for girls and young five and six to talk about what their body looks like let alone 10. I feel like there's a bunch of different things in that there's a craving for normality mm -hmm. which I imagine is slightly is probably more common when you're younger um because yeah. you start to understand yeah and, and there's all that stuff around gray matter when you're developing and how you're more conscious of how others see others see you but then there's also I think I think that point of health is really interesting which is like as you say mm. one of the criticisms I suppose of the body positivity movement which I'm sure you've heard a hundred times is that it's promoting sort of unhealthy behavior mm. what, what's your mm. response to that I tend to just ask 
you know, do you re- do you really care about people's health? And if so, do you think that it's important that they respect and uh, feel good about themselves? Do you think it's important that they don't experience shame around what they eat on a daily basis or what they look like? Because those things are incredibly damaging to your health. There's an increasing amount of research that goes into the impact, the physiological impact of shame and stigma, like for different types of experiences, but especially around size, on like the functioning of your organs, on your ability or willingness to go and advocate for yourself in health environments. You're less likely to look after yourself if you don't think you are worthy of being looked after because you don't think your body is acceptable. Losing weight is the least guaranteed way you can improve your health the statistics on successful weight loss are shocking yet we still give it we still prescribe it as the main way of improving your health which you just wouldn't do if a drug had a 97 percent failure rate you would not give it to people en masse to try and improve their health there are so many other ways to look at your health and like your movement or your smoking or drinking or you know sedentary lifestyle you know, there's so many different things to look at apart from the number on the scale or, you know, the size of your the clothes that you wear. But that's always our main focus. So like health at every size and things like that, which are trying to reframe the way that we give health advice is based on this research that shows that, you know, even things like diabetes and heart disease and these things can be changed without without focusing on that number on the scale, but on focusing on lifestyle behaviours and healthful choices. They might not be these drastic, extreme, sudden changes, but they don't lead to future weight gain and you often yo-yo back. Plus, you know, a lot of talk around health is so obsessed with like the really extreme versions of it, of size on either side of the scale. And I think most people, the majority of people operate in these middle grounds and are dealing with the consequences of this obsession with and weight and I think that everyone deserves to live life like enjoying their body and not thinking that they are a piece of crap because they look a certain way and that they um, have to change themselves in order to be accepted or in order to accept themselves. If you take that as the philosophy or the mission I guess there's a bunch of different ways you could have executed on that or or sort of done initiatives around it because I suppose that one of the kind of criticisms around body positivity again is actually that it's so focused on the body I think a lot of the reason why young girls find it so difficult is actually much more to do with the concept of taking up space Mm. and actually kind of being like you know I'm I it's about having a voice or it's about you know having something to say or it's about having something else apart from the body I suppose that there is they're all quite quite interlinked but did you consider doing anything that was focused more on yeah I mean part of it you know is like if you're not thinking about your body what else can you be doing we do a lot of we do a lot of exercise in our workshops which is like can you think of all of the things that you've stopped doing because you've not liked your body or because you've been on a diet or because you felt like uncomfortable in a safe space because of your body and often there will be so many things I mean events social occasions that you've not missed out on um you know like even form you know forms of movement swimming things that you don't want to do because you you are scared of people seeing you in those costumes or in those positions sex relationships family there's so many elements that poor body image affect when you frame it like that people can see there's like 
Chrissy Harrison calls it like the life thief because it steals so many aspects of joy, so many moments of joy or elements of your social life away from you. Um, and then what are things that you would do if you could spend half the time in your day thinking about your body that you currently do, what would you fill that time with? And it might be a small amount of time and maybe that's just like a bit of mindfulness or, you know, cooking or, um, you know, um, writing or something. Or it's like you're spending so much of your time weighing your food, counting calories, like um, worrying about your last um, meal and fretting about your next meal. I mean, there's so much mental energy that you spend on these things. Um, what would you do physically that has nothing to do with your body? A lot of people feel that they're not affected by diet culture and that they're not on a diet right now and therefore this conversation isn't for them. But, you know, what's something that you do that is focused around your body? How much time do you spend on that? What does it bring to your life? What does it take away from your life? What would you replace it with? Sometimes it's things like our hair, our skin, our pores. And obviously there are elements of this that just can be really therapeutic people enjoy. But a lot of times people are engaging with it because they feel like they have to or because they are scared about what their body looks like or their skin might look like. They feel like something's wrong with them. And I think it's always important to look at whether you're doing this from a place of self-hatred or from a place of self-love. I think the idea, as you say, of seeing your body as a project, I think is super yeah. interesting. Because the thing that I've personally found is that I've been able to look at my own life goals and dreams completely separate from my body so much more since basically making a vow to myself never to diet I've done some cool things I'm pretty proud of but I never let myself be proud of them and my goals were always number one well you know where will I be in 10 years well for first off I'll be skinny um, and that was always the number one thing so taking that element out of it has just left so much room for other parts of my life and my personality, which I hope it will do for other people as well. If you take disordered eating, if you overeat and if you undereat, they're both a form of disconnection with your mm. body. So it's a it's a it's an absence of mindfulness, mm. you know, because you're not in the present moment thinking about what your body needs. Because sometimes your body does need chocolate mm. and sometimes it needs mm -hmm. fruit. Um and I think that is different for different people. And I suppose that's just intuitive eating, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's that's what intuitive eating tries to get you in touch with to get back in touch with that like natural your natural hunger and fullness cues to take the morality out of food choice because I think that's where we falter as we just think well these foods are bad and therefore I'm bad if I eat them or I'm naughty or they have to be only a special treat these foods are good and therefore I'm a good person for eating them and that is not true and it is just constructed I mean there is like a like history a uh, very colonial religious history and all of this I mean like Graham Crackers the Quaker who made the first diet food, which was his graham crackers. Um, and that was all about, you know, purity and these exotic things that we were finding from our empire were linked with, you know, sin and sexuality and blackness and exoticness and things that, you know, we wanted to refrain from as like middle-class British. The diets that people talked about in the early 1900s were just absolutely insane. Every different person had a different rules. Things that we know scientifically is nonsense, but a lot of it, people still say none. Where's the understanding here that literally every single person needs to eat differently and will want to eat differently and will get different pleasure and joy from different food? 
why do you have to reduce everything to like what is the right way to do it what is the moral way to do it what will make you a more enlightened person in maybe the early victorian era if you were fat you were rich and you had access to food and then with the influx of sugar much more cheaply and with other foods more accessible and it just increasingly size began to be framed with this like what as this kind of lower class lower morality thing so I think it's got a complex history but somehow we've just designated certain foods now and it changes all the time I mean like birth of the superfood which has like very little nutritional foundation but people still say it like 15 years after the blueberry came out as the superfood people are like that's the superfood I'm like do you know what that means you'd have to eat like a million blueberries for it to have this super effect on you all food has nutritional value so like it will have some level of fat or sugar but there's all these certain foods which you know they find certain levels of like antioxidants or anti-inflammatory properties and then they state eating that one thing as this like superfood which has superpower but from what I know you'd have to eat a fuck ton of this stuff for it to have these effects and it's all about balance and about getting a variety of foods. You could not eat blueberries all day and just expect your brain to be okay. You need to eat loads of other things on with it. And so there is no superfood because nothing on its own can save you. So if you want to get rid of the moralization of food, how do you feel about nutritionists and people talking about the health benefits of food? What's your kind of perspective on what's the right way to kind of talk about it? registered dietitians are the people that I would send anyone to I think they have to be registered with like a certified board and there are an increasing number of them who are recognizing that like the kind of way that they were taught or the way that nutrition has been taught about is very prescriptive and most people need to be given the power back to them to figure out what works for them rather than taking away power from them where they feel sort of like they have no control around food or they don't know what decisions to make they can't trust in their own instincts about and their own needs because they've been given this set of rules and there is a lot of quacks out there and there is a lot of misinformation and stuff that bullshit that you need to wade through i'd recommend like dr joshua woolrich laura thomas veronica garnett as people who just try and like unpack a lot of that crap when it comes to food and scaremongering and this fear around certain types of food and a lot of people have made a lot of money of looking a certain way and selling this as a plan to people but most sensible nutritionists would never do that and with shame how do you get rid of shame stop talking about food and bodies in terms of moral terms good and bad naughty and fine and even healthy and unhealthy is sometimes not um, productive because we now associate something as unhealthy as bad so changing your language having a conversation with other people about changing their language as well and then giving yourself a break I think just being really gentle with yourself rather than seeing everything as like a failure or success food and movement even is like ritual and joy and pleasure and family and memory and like part of this really beautiful story rather than this like strict regimen stop thinking about food and movement in that way it's made me feel a lot less guilt and shame about what I'm doing if you don't have those kind of structures of looking at food 
which which so, so many people are used to, which is let's say good and bad at its most sort of pernicious, and then healthy and non healthy yeah. as as its potentially most useful. Yeah, I suppose that the one of the main reasons that people kind of buy into that is because it makes it easy for them. You know how yeah. they they don't have time to look into the research for psychology around food, and they yeah. just sort of need to trust with someone else's decision. Is there a kind of an easy way that someone can learn the stuff that you've learned over two and a half years? I would say that everyone has the ability to trust themselves or can have the ability to trust themselves and that it's not a quick fix and it can't be learned after a book because it's like years and years of unlearning not being able to trust our bodies the steps of intuitive eating is a te- is a 10 step program and the last step is gentle nutrition where you the, that's the last thing you think about is these like the the nutritional aspects of what you're putting in your body because there's so much to unlearn before that maybe for a while you have to abandon any sort of like perfect eating style to let your body find its natural weight to let your mind find a natural more natural way of thinking about food to unpack your own fat phobia and fear of fat of yourself and of people is a more vital step when you do start to learn to trust your body and listen to your body's cues you do not want to eat quote unquote unhealthy things your body wants a really lovely balance of foods it might not be this balance within a day but it will be a balance over time what do you think the future is for anti-diet right club as well as doing our bus next year which we weren't able to do this year and i'm really excited about tell us a bit more about the bus so we raised sixteen over £16,000 through Crowdfunder last year to build a mobile event space, the Anti-Right Bus, that we could take to people all around the country, outside of London, which is where we normally run our events, to like smaller communities and to just spread the word and engage with people. It's happening more and more, but it tends to be like focused around Brighton, Bristol, London, and we just want to get it to those different places um, and meet all the people that follow us but around the country. We got 5,000 from NatWest um, who do a sort of female business-focused fund called Back Her Business. I mean, it was a lot of hard work. It was so stressful. I think that raise, trying to raise over five grand is, is a really big deal if we'd only had a community of maybe 20 30,000 then on on Instagram and Facebook together so it was really hard because most people on average only give you 15 pounds so we had to get hundreds of people to donate and we didn't get any big donations from other businesses other than that west was it your hardest moment do you think i think so yeah that was the most stress i've ever been plus before the festival that we did this january but the hardest moments, they're stressful, but the hardest moments are like when you do something wrong. Like I, that's happened a few times where in the community you've been called out for something, um, you know, whether it's not being not using an accessible venue or people often like you know, ticket prices are too high, even though they're incredibly low compared to anything yeah. that happened in America or Australia. But, you know, people that you want on behind you and to support you find flaws in what you do and and want to pick that apart and that is always the hardest because I'm such a people pleaser how do you deal with that oh just like freak out and like feel like an absolute failure and then try and like get advice from Harry and my dad and people that had businesses before and had to be resilient to this kind of stuff if you think about anyone in the public 
eye like they must just receive so much of that and you have to have a thing of fear and I just hadn't experienced it before and like actually not I'm not very good with failure I've always been quite high achieving person and I just hadn't failed enough I think that criticism thing's really interesting though when you're running something that's mission-based especially there is always someone with something to say about what you're doing and if you're putting something out there like you know you're just going to have different opinions and I think it's a really difficult thing to navigate if you want to do something right by society I think you Mm -hmm. need to listen to those criticisms but I Mm -hmm. think maybe balancing the criticisms and your responsiveness to them I think is the real challenge I mean literally Mm. there's a there's an interview with Elon Musk he's almost crying because someone's interviewing him and they're saying have you seen the criticism from no I think was some of the first guys who went to the moon Um, and they're really critical of commercial space travel and he says yeah I've seen it it really hurts you know and they and and the interview is like are they your heroes and he was like yeah and the interviewer says the interviewer says are they why you started this and he goes yeah Oh, and, and it's just amazing it just shows that it doesn't stop though you know like and actually everyone's everyone's gonna have a point of view but I, I'm so interested on how people navigate it because it is difficult I think it is a podcast subject worthy in itself because I am so having now experienced it on such a small scale I am absolutely like just in in awe in like fear in just intrigued by how people deal with with failing with having people criticize you with people who you in your community calling you out on things when you take it personally it's really hard and like yes you know you put your head above the parapet and people are going to take shots at you and that means is the whole hate on a hate thing that is not what it feels like it feels like people who want to support you and um if you were doing it better or if you were better as a person then they would love you and like we all want love and how do you deal with just not being loved by everyone because you can't a couple of bits of advice that I've that's resonated with me I, I can't be everything for everyone that's impossible I'll end up being nothing for no one and recognizing that no not everyone will be pleased also that every single time this happens I do learn from it I mean you know CEOs and tech companies are starting to have like failure brainstorms they try and create an environment where failure is celebrated celebrate the mistakes the things that fucked up and rather than scaring away from them not accepting them and fearing them and not owning up leaning into them as like places where you can grow and learn I don't ever do an event in an inaccessible place because a time where someone you know wanted to come who was in a wheelchair and rightly so was very pissed off no matter what, at that time, I was looking for accessible buildings because there aren't that many in London. And even if I said that to them, they didn't give a shit, really. And that was their right. And so I felt really hurt because I was like, I am trying right now. I've been to like five venues this in the past couple of weeks to look for venues for my next event. It just made me learn very quickly that that wasn't good enough. And the way that these things affect people who can't come to your events is more important than like the way you were affected by someone calling you out on it Mm. it's really difficult to get that balance where you're you're trying to navigate like learning from things and not getting totally overwhelmed by that and and it's I think it is that's a new challenge is navigating the valid criticisms of something that you've over overshot and you've not seen from the ones which have they're just sitting there like trolls you know with anonymous accounts commenting on stuff i think also even if they are pointing something out that's correct do they see you as like a person 
who's busy and makes mistakes or are they just sort of punching you because they they're angry and they don't know where else to punch are they uh bitter you know there, there's so many different reasons why people have pain and why they push that onto you even though sometimes they have other criticism sometimes their pain is misdirected or anger is misdirected at you you have to kind of be a bit aware of that everyone's got a voice now on social media and as a human you absolutely obsessed about the one negative voice in a, in a sea of 100 positive voices and I think it's like a natural response like we want to protect ourselves but it can be really overwhelming because it's just you you obsess for days it's part of just caring about what you're doing though right it's exactly. like I, I really give a shit so that's why I crumble in those moments but it's always a learning curve and it's still side project so it's kind of changed over the years um from being a definite side project to being something that's more in my focus um to going back to being a side project recently actually it's gone from being my main focus and I've just suddenly come to the decision that that I want to put it round carousel or put it on the back burner for a little bit and put my mind to other projects when you when you make something like this your main main priority your main source of income it takes a lot of that passion and love out of it sometimes as an activist platform and as a platform that exists in a community that is quite radical and anti-capitalist and a lot of things it's really hard to reconcile that with also wanting to like you know survive off of it it became this job it became like a chore and I don't want it to be like that ever I'd love to talk a bit more about that kind of moving it from a side to a full-time thing because people who have turned it full-time actually sort of a couple of people have sort of said they've looked back and they've been like actually the best time was when I had it on the side because it's kind of like as you say it preserves the passion and I think but the way that you work on it full-time is you have to make money right I wanted to make Antidote Right Club this kind of full-time enterprise for that reason and it's only for personal reasons that I've realized actually for 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 my sake and for my quality of life and for my like engagement with this I think I need it to be one of some several things that I'm passionate about and I am passionate about loads of different things and I felt like that was like a real failure for a long time but I didn't have my one thing that I was passionate about and you know that I wasn't good enough at anything I was kind of all right at lots of things and now it's something that I appreciate in myself at least. I guess people are still quite uncomfortable with like portfolio careers or, or multi-dimensionality. Like we, we are quite binary, how, how we think about things. And I think it does apply to work as well. People cannot get their head around it because they're like, and if it's something you enjoy doing, like why wouldn't you do it full time? The reason that matters is because if you enjoy it and you want it to have an impact, you want to spend more time in it and time requires money. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the reason why I did that was exactly that. You know, I thought you know, it's got a lot of momentum and for it to really impact change, I have to... You know, it has to make money for it to be sustainable. Now is the time more than ever to really devote myself to it. A lot of that was external pressure from people that I was talking to who had their experience in running a business, maybe not nowadays, but in like, you know, previous generations and very much felt like, you know, if you're going to make this work, you have to work all the time on it. And it has to be like you living and breathing it. And, um, you know, you have to like sacrifice so much to make it work right now. I think that we think that if you're not focusing on it, therefore it's a failure and you've given up. Like it's such a huge part of what I want to do in my work and also my personal life. But that doesn't mean it has to be my one focus the whole time. 
Was it a social enterprise that you set it up as? So at first it was just sole trading. Now we sort of moved it towards more official. Social enterprises, there is no specific like company's house category for it. You can be a social enterprise and be a limited company. You can be a social enterprise and be a community interest company. It just describes the way that you center like the social impact in the work that you do and not always like profit or shares or even if you are for profit company or whatever. Do you make enough money for it to kind of contribute to your living expenses or does it all go back into the business? I pay myself and Harry Rose, who works with us, we pay ourselves almost like a freelance rate. At the moment, we're not paying ourselves like a standard salary. So no, it doesn't contribute to living costs in the way that other jobs do. Uh, we put so much of it back into the to, to Antidote Riot Club. So it's never really taken off the ground in like a money sense which was never the plan anyway. I mean, I set it up just to create community. And so it didn't start with this really detailed business plan, which is something that I would take into consideration if I was to start another project. Very much easier, I think, if you have a kind of clear and not too lengthy idea of what your revenue streams will be, rather than what I did was sort of spread myself thin over loads of different ways of trying to get income. I guess doing that can also be quite a good thing to do because it diversifies your income, Mm -hmm. you know, stream. So it means that you can test different channels out. We were doing that. It was about experimenting because it was so new. It's not like there was a format for this kind of organization before. You know, what does it look like? What do people want? What do people resonate with? What do we enjoy? But the downside is that it's a bit, I guess, chaotic. Would that be fair to say? It's never got to the stage where it could that we could really expand the team. But I mean, I know loads of people, you know, running incredibly successful businesses um, and expand teams and, as you're saying, on the side. And that works as well. If you were to start it completely again or do a whole new community or another kind of activist platform, what do you think you'd do differently? I'd probably create a small team from the beginning to work with. I now work with Harry a lot and she's been incredible and we have, we basically work together on most of the events and content but I think having like a small team from the outset would have been quite useful and getting diverse perspectives rather than starting it myself and then trying to bring other people on I put on the first like five events by myself and started all the marketing myself and all the branding and did all made all of the decisions for myself pretty much for the first year I think that would would be something I'd definitely do differently I just think it ha- it's so important to have like a little support network. It's so important to be able to bounce ideas off. And from the outset, I think it's easier to get people feeling like kind of sense of responsibility for something if they are there for the birth. Obviously, it doesn't always work out, but it has always felt like my baby in a way. And it's been quite hard to give up and delegate from that. I would have been a bit clearer with myself from the beginning, but like how much time I was willing to spend on it for the amount that I was getting back. Um, you know, after the first year, I did a sort of an assessment of what we'd made and how much time I'd spent on it um, in all the different areas. And, you know, I paid myself like one pound an hour for all the work that I'd done. Acknowledging that was like a huge shock. You never want to get to a stage where you feel sort of resentful. People think Anti-Right Club must make loads of money and you've got like 100,000 followers. And I'm just like, I've really never made any money from this. Like I've made, maybe paid myself a small amount, but in comparison to how much I've worked, it's absolute pennies. I guess, as you say, you want to manage that kind of sense of resentment. But the other thing is actually, 
knowing that you get a lot more than than money because I think you're right if most people quantify okay I've been doing it for a year and this is what I've got from my financial perspective I think it's yeah it's very easy to be like what the hell am I doing they're very illogical and irrational side project yeah. but I think the the thing that's great about them a they give you skills that you would never have learned before mm-hmm. in your work probably not as quickly secondly you meet just amazing people that you'd never usually meet And then three, I think they give you a kind of intangible kind of confidence and sense of purpose, which Mm. is quite hard to get when you're just in one sort of full-time work. Do you think any of that resonates with your experience? I mean, definitely. I have, I might have paid myself a pound an hour, but I've learned (laughs) so much from, from so many different elements of running Antidote Riot Club, from the kind of um, like community building side to the more admin finance budgeting it's very steep learning curves and also amazing experiences I've met incredible people I went I was on BBC One News in the studio which was absolutely insane expressing my voice finding a platform to express my voice on and writing a bit more I have been able to use a lot of those skills in the freelance and the jobs that I've worked in alongside it and in a lot of the work that I was doing alongside it complemented it and and I think that's what side projects often do is that they give you a new lease of life for the other work that you do because you're making connections and learning new skills so it can not even just be good to an employer but it can actually reinvigorate your own appreciation for what you do even if it's just like you know oh god running a business on your on your own is hard 100% also it takes the pressure off your main work being your whole self like your work doesn't need to define you but you do need to do things with your time that are meaningful and that you Mm. think are contributing to something that's important in society I just don't think it has to be your main job that's completely true and I think I I definitely learned especially at uni that you know what you do is like the defining thing about you and and that's not true and it shouldn't be the case, but like it's still how my mind thinks a lot of the time. And so having a range of passions and range of projects and like purposes is important to me. Thanks so much. Such an interesting conversation. Uh, um, hopefully we get to meet up in real life soon. <laughs> See you later. See you later. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. To hear more about Out of Hours, sign up to our newsletter at outofhours.org. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a review. It really helps.